we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian. I'm executive director of the Center. And our guest this episode is Art Arthur. Andrew Arthur, you'll see him in writing, but only his mother calls him Andrew. Art is what we'll be calling him. He is the resident fellow in law and policy at the center and has a long track record, a long career in the immigration business. He used to be an attorney back in the old INS dealing with immigration cases, national security cases very often related to immigration, has been a Hill staffer, two separate sessions on the Hill, being involved intimately in a lot of issues, oversight of immigration and other things, but as well as actually writing a lot of the immigration and immigration-related legislation, and for a number of years was an immigration judge. We call him Your Honor around here very often, and, uh, but he does not come in in robes or a dress, although I'd love to see that someday. He's going to be talking to us today, or we're going to be talking about the loopholes in the law, in our immigration law, that function, or let me put it this way, accentuate the pull factors that are attracting people here, especially families and so-called unaccompanied minors from Central America. This is the issue that's been in the news. It's something that actually has been building since the beginning of the Obama administration, really. Well, even 2008 or 2009, it's been building with ups and downs since then. So the border crisis that President Biden instigated is actually part of something that's been going on for a decade or more, and the underlying issues are what I want to talk to Art about today, which are the aspects of our law that incentivize people either to send their kids or to, to pay smugglers to bring their kids or to come as family members. So Art, thanks for uh, doing this, and why don't we just sort of start on what is this, what are these loopholes, pull factors, and, and then we can talk about maybe each one of them in turn. Thank you, Mark. There are actually three different pull factors that I can more or less place them in time as to when they came into effect. First, it's important to note that in the month of March, Border Patrol apprehended 168,000-plus migrants entering illegally. That included 96,628 adults, 52,904 adult migrants who were traveling with children, also known as family, and it's an 18,663 unaccompanied alien children. Those are migrants under the age of 17 who are traveling alone. This reverses a trend that we've seen throughout most of immigration history. Before 2011, 90% of all illegal arriving aliens were single adult males, and before 2009, 90% of them were here from Mexico. In the month of March, on the other hand, about 85% of all the migrants who were apprehended after entering illegally came from three countries, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. 
and what we and those are usually called the northern triangle countries that's the shorthand because the when you look at a map they're kind of like make up a triangle yeah. so often my point is often people use northern triangle as a shorthand for those three countries yeah the ntca or the northern triangle of central america countries and if we go back uh, about 10 years we can see the reasons why we see an increase in unaccompanied alien children and in adults traveling with children and family units. In 2008, actually in FY 2009, but in 2008, Congress passed the Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act of 2008, the TVPRA, or the William Wilberforce Act. The TVPRA actually treats unaccompanied alien children differently depending on what countries they're coming from. Migrants who are from Canada and Mexico who arrive in this country as unaccompanied children can be quickly removed from the United States if they don't have an asylum claim and if they haven't been trafficked. Tra just to clarify, somebody's trafficked as opposed to being smuggled. Those are two different things. Smuggle is where you're voluntarily doing it. Trafficked is either when you're being when you're kidnapped or you're being tricked somehow, being used, as opposed to using the smuggler as a way to get in. That's an important distinction, Mark, because a lot of people conflate the two things. Trafficking involves bringing someone to the United States to engage in forced labor. Uh, in the case of children, it can also involve a sex, sexual abuse crime or sex crime of a different sort. Whereas many of these children entered the United States to the degree that they have any say in it at all on their own accord, generally these individuals come to the United States because their family paid for them to come here or sent them here or because their family in the United States actually paid smugglers to bring them to the United States. So those people, technically, if they're from Mexico or Canada and they're not being trafficked and they're not saying, I fear persecution, they can just be sent back. But what about other people who aren't from Mexico or Canada? Unaccompanied alien children who are from every country on the face of the earth, and most particularly from those northern triangle countries, are supposed to be handed over to the Department of Health and Human Services in 72 hours. Health and Human Services then places them in shelters, either that it runs or that it contracts for, for placement in the United States with sponsors. Back in 2019, a congressional committee determined that about 78.7% of all of those sponsors were themselves here illegally. In 2017, then DHS Secretary John Kelly said that about 60% of all sponsors were the parents of the children here illegally. More recent estimates have shown that 90% of the sponsors are family members of the unaccompanied alien child, and about 40% of them are family members. So because of this distinction between children from the contiguous countries of Mexico and Canada on the one hand and every other country on the other, this Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act has had a pull factor on those unaccompanied alien children. In 2014, President Obama actually went to Congress and asked them to undo this distinction between Canadians and Mexicans on the one hand and all other unaccompanied alien children on the other, asking Congress to give him, quote, additional authority to exercise discretion in processing the return and removal of unaccompanied alien minors, uh, unaccompanied alien children from non-contiguous countries like Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, close quote. So 
even President Obama recognized the fact that this encourages people to either send these children or these children to enter the United States illegally. Because there's basically a guarantee that they will be let into the country. That's kind of, that's what it amounts to. That's exactly. Whatever happens in the end, they are essentially guaranteed not to be immediately turned around if they're not from Mexico or Canada. Yes, and in fact, Judge Andrew Hannon of the U.S. District Court in the Southern District of Texas went so far as to say that the United States government was completing the smuggling conspiracy when it took custody of these children and brought them to their family members in the United States. So that's the first big loophole is the so-called TVPRA. What's the other one, the next one that basically incentivizes this flow of children and families? The next one in time actually occurred in December of 2009. That month, then ICE Director John Morton issued a memorandum in which he stated that individuals who had claimed to have a credible fear of return, that is, that they were going to be harmed if they were returned to their home countries after entering illegally, and who were uh, received a positive credible fear determination from an asylum officer at USCIS, were to be released into the United States. And just some background on this. Back in 1996, Congress made the process of removing individuals who had entered illegally easier for DHS. They created something called expedited removal. Under expedited removal, aliens who are apprehended entering illegally or without proper documents can be quickly returned to their home countries. There's one exception to that rule, however, and that is for any individual who expresses a fear of return or asks for asylum, Border Patrol agents and CBP officers are supposed to hand those individuals over to asylum officers from USCIS for a credible fear screening. The credible fear standard is lower than the asylum screening, considering whether there's a significant possibility that an individual could be eligible for asylum. Just to make clear, credible, in other words, we sort of use credible fear as a shorthand, but what that means is, like you said, it's a screening, it's like a first cut to see whether, the way I put it, kind of tongue half in cheek, is whether Mickey Mouse is talking to you through your dental work or whether there's some, as you said, some significant likelihood that they might actually be able to get asylum. So they're not actually applying for asylum. It's kind of the, it's the screening interview to see whether they should be allowed to go on to the next step. And the bar is pretty low, as you said? Yeah, the bar is extremely low. In fact, between FY 2009 and FY 2019, about 83% of all aliens who either asserted a fear of harm or requested asylum received a positive credible fear determination. But at the end of the day, only about 17% of all of those aliens who received a positive credible fear determination were actually granted asylum. In fact, the odds were more likely, about 32.5%, that you weren't going to show up for your hearing than that you were actually going to be granted asylum. Right. So there's this very low credible fear bar, but under law, you're supposed to be detained, right? If your fear is found to be not credible, so then you're supposed to be bounced out. If your fear is found to be credible, which most of the time it is because the bar is so low, the law says, does it not, that you're supposed to be detained? And what happened with that? Yeah, so under Section 235B of the Immigration and Nationality Act, any person who asserts a fear of harm is to be detained until interviewed by an asylum officer. And if they receive a positive credible fear determination, as you noted, they're supposed to be detained until an immigration judge can actually make a ruling on their asylum case. So what changed in 2009 then? 
So in December 2009, Director Morton stated that anybody who received a positive credible fear determination, it was not a risk of flight or harm to the community, was to be released into the United States on what's called parole. Parole is like a bond in a criminal proceeding where the but individual- But without money. But without money. Where an individual promises that they'll come back to court and they're released on their own recognizance in essence. So- That encouraged more people to come to the United States and assert credible fear as migrants and their smugglers discovered yet another loophole. My question on this requirement that a person who makes this claim of fear and then is found, that claim is found to be credible, you said the law requires that they're to be detained. How did the Obama administration get around that? I mean, is there a waiver? Is there discretion? In other words, how? How did Morton, you know, under the Obama administration, how did he get away with just saying, okay, well, we're going to let these people go into the U.S.? Section 212D5 of the Immigration and Nationality Act provides a very limited ability by the Department of Homeland Security to parole individuals into the United States for significant public benefit or on humanitarian grounds. Morton basically turned this upside down to create a presumption that individuals who had received a positive credible fear determination would be released in the United States. So that detention had kept a cap on individuals who had come to this country and simply wanted to be released into the United States, entering illegally and being released. So making that claim before that didn't result basically in automatic release. No. And and so once it did, then... There you go. I mean, it's kind of an invitation to smugglers, right? Yeah. So in FY 2009, which was before Morton had issued this directive, asylum officers completed just over 5,500 credible fear cases. And keep in mind, most of those, uh, many if not most of those, were airport cases. So individuals who had arrived in the United States had flushed their passport down the toilet and made an asylum claim would be detained for credible fear. After Morton issued this directive, The number of people claiming credible fear more than doubled in FY 2011 and then tripled again to 36,454 in FY 2013. This got so out of control that by FY 2019, when we saw a migrant crisis, asylum officers received 105,439 credible fear claims. Now, remember, that's compared to 5,500 credible fear claims in FY 2009 before Morton issued this directive. That means that the number of credible fear claims increased 18 times between FY 2009 and FY 2019. There is no single factor that would account for that massive increase in credible fear claims other than the fact that those individuals were banking on being released from custody. Why didn't anybody sue? I mean, is there a potential there to, you know, to have sued or even at this point now to sue the administration over abuse of the uh, parole authority that Congress has given them? Unfortunately, uh, up to that point, states and localities were not commonly thought to have standing to sue. So it wasn't until a case called Texas versus United States when the state of Texas challenged deferred action for parents of uh, United States citizens and lawful permanent residents, also known as DAPA, D-A-P-A, that courts recognized the fact that states could sue based upon the economic effects that these policies were going to have on the United States. So when Morton issued this determination, nobody really thought anybody had standing to challenge it. And unfortunately now, 
we see so many people come in and claim credible fear that DHS lacks the ability, lacks the resources As to actually detain matter. those yeah. people okay. again. And it's important to note, Mark, that uh, the Migrant Protection Protocols, also known as MPP or Remain in Mexico, which President Trump put into place uh, in 2019, basically did the same thing. So MPP, rather than bringing people into the United States and detaining them, made them go back to Mexico. So if your point in coming to the United States was to live and work here, either under detention or MPP, you don't have the ability to do that until after you're actually granted asylum. What MPP and detention both do is it cuts down on the number of bogus or fraudulent cases or, you know, uh, worthless asylum claims, while it enables individuals who have good claims to have those claims heard more quickly. Right, right. Good. Okay, so we've got TVPRA, and then there's the detention issue. What is well, I want to ask something legislative, too, about the credible fear bar. But the, the third loophole is this Flores Agreement. Is that correct? And if you could sort of just quickly give a little background on how that started. So back in 1997, the Department of Justice entered into a settlement agreement with a group of plaintiffs to govern the terms uh, and conditions of detention and release of migrant children. Between 1997, when Attorney General Reno entered into that decision, and August of 2015, that uh, settlement agreement, the Flores Settlement Agreement, was commonly thought to only apply to unaccompanied alien children. And that's what everybody, I mean, that's what they thought it was. That's what it was, basically, at the beginning. It was for unaccompanied children, right? I mean... um, It, It was. Yeah, right. So what happened in 2014 was, again, the Obama administration was facing a huge influx of migrants into the United States, including adults traveling with children. The Obama administration took those individuals and allegedly had a policy of not releasing them and placed them at various unlicensed locations in the United States, including military bases around the country, so that it could detain them and dissuade other individuals from entering the United States illegally. The Flores plaintiffs went to the judge who is overseeing that agreement, a woman named Dolly G., U.S. District Court judge from the Central District of California in Los Angeles, and said those children should be released under the Flores settlement. And these were children with family members. Children with family members, accompanied children is uh, how they're referred to. So Judge G. actually took all of this one step further. She said yes. Under Flores, those children have to be released within 20 days. She basically created the 20-day standard because Tom Homan, who was then an assistant director at ICE, later became the director of ICE on an acting basis, issued an affidavit that said it would take about 20 days for these individuals to have credible fear interviews. So Judge G took that, made that a 20-day release standard, and now all of those unaccompanied children had to be released within 20 days. Judge she actually took that a step further yet, again, and said that the parents had to be released too. The Obama administration's Justice Department appealed that decision, and in 2016, the Ninth Circuit said you don't have to release the parents, but you do have to release the children, reinforcing that 20-day standard, which Judge G had created in August 2015. And just, she also made up the idea that the agreement applied to accompanied children. So she made up two things. In other words, that the Flores Agreement didn't just apply to unaccompanied minors, which is what everybody thought it was, and that was the whole point of it. She expanded it to cover minors who came with parents, but then also made specific this 20-day 
thing as well. Yeah, and the 20-day release requirement was a very big deal. Again, the Obama administration challenged that they lost. They didn't take it to the Supreme Court, although they probably should have. But as a consequence, ICE didn't invest in large-scale detention facilities for families because they could only hold those families for about 20 days. So consequently, when the next migrant crisis came up in 2019, ICE found itself with only 2,500 detention beds for tens of thousands of families that were entering every month. So even for the 20 days, they couldn't hold people as a practical matter. In other words, they didn't have space to hold them even for the 20 days. No, they didn't. Following the 2015-2016 Flores decisions, the number of aliens who were traveling in family units apprehended by Border Patrol agents at the southwest border increased from 68,445 in FY 2014 to 473,682. That's a 600% increase. Again, there is no single factor that accounts for a six-fold increase in the number of parents who are entering with children other than that 2015 Flores decision with its 20-day release requirement. And in fact, in April of 2019, the Homeland Security Advisory Council impaneled a bipartisan group of experts to look at the crisis at the border. That group of individuals who looked at the crisis at the border said that the crisis was caused, the major pull factor bringing those people to the United States was Border Patrol's policy of releasing, with a notice to appear, which is a charging document and removal proceedings, individuals who had traveled in family units because they just didn't have the space. They said that that uh, crisis was exacerbated by the Flores decision, and they actually called on Congress. Again, this is a bipartisan group of experts, including Barack Obama's former main immigration attorney in the Department of Justice, Leon Fresco, to fix Flores by making clear that it didn't apply to accompanied children, but only applied to unaccompanied children as it had commonly been known to be. That was never acted on. The TVPRA fix was never acted on. So those are the factors that are driving individuals today. And again, when you're talking about 52,904 migrants traveling in family units, when you're talking about 18,663 children in the month of March entering the United States illegally, those individuals are coming not because of poverty, corruption, hurricanes. I mean, those are all factors that convince people that they want to leave their home countries. What's bringing them into the United States are these loopholes, these bad policies in U.S. laws that Congress can fix. So the push factor, basically, the push factors that people talk about, you know, like you said, poverty, corruption, bad weather, what have you, those in a sense are necessary but not sufficient, if you will, to create the kind of border crisis we have. That, In other words, people have to want to leave, obviously, but there's all kinds of people who want to leave. The reason that we're seeing these huge spikes, this surge at the border, Basically, it's, a, it's an artifact of government policy. In other words, U.S. government policy has, in effect, created the surge at the border, is what you're saying. Yeah, and we call this in the law an attractive nuisance. That's something that encourages people to engage in risky or dangerous behavior. 
In this situation, we know that that migrant trek out of those northern triangle countries, primarily to the United States, is extremely risky for everyone involved. About two-thirds of all migrants who make that trip, according to a survey a couple years back from Doctors Without Borders, are subject to physical abuse. About one-third, just less than one-third of all female migrants are subject to sexual abuse. That 2019 bipartisan panel actually, you know, explained all of this in context and talked about how female migrants were being raped, about how migrant families were being, you know, held for ransom by these smuggling organizations who are just absolutely abysmal individuals. And in fact, that panel referred to those children who were, you know, being brought by their parents to the United States as pawns in this. And that panel talked in great length about the trauma to those children and about how those children, you know, show up having gone through this horrible trek with all of the sequelae that anybody who experiences privation, uh, starvation, hardship on the trip to the United States, it's especially true when it comes to that group of children. Interesting. So now what is, what can we do about it? I mean, we can complain and all that stuff, but specifically what can first the administration do or could the administration do if they were so inclined? And then what is kind of necessarily left to Congress. What does Congress have to fix? So why don't we start with the first. What can an administration that actually wanted to stem this surge, what can they do? The Biden administration could do exactly what the Trump administration did when it was faced with these issues. So with respect to migrants who are arriving in the United States, entering into an agreement with the Mexican government to house those individuals until their cases can be heard is something that Congress could do or that the administration could do. In fact, the president's given the authority again under Section 235B of the uh, Immigration and Nationality Act to push people who arrive illegally out of the United States until their cases can be heard. So that is actually within the government's authority. And just to clarify, too, that is something, as you said, you needed an agreement with Mexico because these people aren't Mexican. And in a sense, once they cross through Mexican territory and get into ours, Mexico actually doesn't have to take them back. I mean, it's kind of a hot potato kind of thing. We need their agreement to be able to push non-Mexicans back into Mexico, because otherwise Mexico can say, they're not Mexican, we don't, we're not taking them. Right. And, you know, it's a very important point because Mexico is only obligated to receive Mexican nationals back into its country. But a lot of people focus on the economic heat that Trump brought on Mexico. But Mexico actually wants to stem this flow of individuals illegally through its country, too. We know that every migrant that passes through what cartels claim is their territory, their smugglers have to pay what's called a tax or a piso for those individuals to enter the United States through cartel-controlled territories. That's money that flows into the pockets of the cartels that enables them to, you know, spread death in Mexico. You know, last year we saw the murder rate in Mexico go down by a total of 103 murders, but there were still tens of thousands of murders in Mexico in 2020, 113 drop-off from the year before. But we've seen these high levels of homicides in Mexico, and the main reason is the power of the cartels. And the interesting thing is, I mean, the cartels make money off of drugs, too. So people say, well, you know, that's, that's where they're—and it's true. That's, that they're getting their, a lot of their money from Americans buying drugs. 
weaning people off of drugs is a whole lot more difficult than making some policy tweaks to limit the business of illegal immigration. In other words, this is a relatively easy way to reduce the income of cartels, whereas persuading people to stop taking drugs is just a whole lot more difficult to do. Yeah, if you look at the uh, demand side versus the supply side for illegal drug use in the United States, controlling the supply side is actually a lot easier. And one of the main ways that we can do that is by controlling the border. It's important to note that when Border Patrol agents have to care for unaccompanied alien children, when they have to care for families, they're not on the line. In that 2019 report, that panel found that about 40% of CBP resources were taken up in just caring for people in uh, CBP custody. The same is true today. We don't know the exact numbers, but you know we do know from reporting that Border Patrol is not able to do its job. Even then, we've seen that CBP apprehensions of drugs are higher this year in the case of cocaine, heroin, fentanyl, methamphetamines on a anticipated basis for FY 2021 than they were in FY 2020, and they were still high in FY 2020. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is a serious problem, not just for the border, but for every community across the United States. Okay, so the administration could restore something like the Remain in Mexico program as one thing they have the power to do. What does Congress have to do? Congress can very easily fix the Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act of 2008, that TVPRA that I talked about before, just as President Obama asked it to. And in fact, the editorial page of the Washington Post itself said that, you know, that discrepancy between children from contiguous countries and children from other countries, in particular those northern triangle countries, quote, encourage thousands of Central American children to try to reach the United States by granting them access to immigration courts that Mexican kids don't enjoy. Close quote. So when the Washington Post editorial board is recognizing something as a loophole... And President Obama. And President Obama. You can be pretty sure that it's a loophole. And again, when Leon Fresco, President Obama's immigration lawyer, says, hey, you should fix Flores, that's something that Congress definitely should do. Right, so that's the other one. So Congress could... It wouldn't even have to get rid of TVPRA. I mean, it's a bigger bill, but just that element of it that makes it harder to return people, minors, who aren't from Mexico. Modify the Flores Agreement, I assume legislate. I mean, it's a judicial settlement, but Congress has the authority to change that. Congress can legislate away the Flores Settlement Agreement. Again, this was a purely administrative agreement that was put into place simply to govern the conditions of detention and release. So by saying that Flores only applies, I mean, they, they wouldn't even have to get rid of it, they could just modify it by saying it only applies to unaccompanied minors, that minors who come with adults can be detained Absolutely. beyond the 20 days. Yeah, no, they have the power to do that. Right, and then the third thing that sort of relates to the detention issue is, have there been proposals and how would it be done to raise the bar for that initial screening that they call the credible fear screening, so that the people who make the first cut for asylum are a lot more likely to actually get asylum or warrant it rather than the way it is now, which is most of the people who make that initial screening aren't actually eligible for asylum. So it's too low, in other words. Is there a way to raise the bar for that? Yeah, the administration could do that, again, administratively. They could issue guidance to asylum officers that more accurately reflected what should be a screening standard. 
you know, the words are in the Immigration and Nationality Act. The interpretation of those words very much left open to the administration. But the other thing that the administration could do is, again, undo the Morton policy and detain those individuals. That 2019 panel actually called for the establishment of regional processing centers where those family units could be detained, mainly safely. Regional processing centers where? In what Along the border. Oh, on our side of the border. On our side of the border. Okay, yeah. And immigration judges and uh, staff could be rushed down there so that they could actually hear those individuals' cases more quickly and get them out of custody if they are granted asylum or remove them from the United States if they're not. So a kind of last-in, first-out approach. In other words, the newest cases they would listen to right away so that they could bounce them out. And if they're people who are still in the backlog from three years ago, sort of put those lower down. Just because the point would be, as I understand it, to kind of get to remove the incentive for new people to keep doing this. Absolutely. And that way, you know, we're looking at a backlog right now, 1.3 million cases before 529 immigration judges. It's going to be impossible for them to actually address that so long as they're getting 168,000 people showing up at the border illegally every month. Right. So they need to basically deal with the new cases first in order to slow the flow of additional new cases. Now, is there something Congress can do, though, to to raise the credible fear bar? Because I know some of this is legalese, but isn't the wording, you know, something like likely to get or rather than more likely, that kind of thing? So Congress could uh, change that language. Again, remember, about 83 percent of people who claimed credible fear over a 12-year period were found, received a positive credible fear determination against 17 percent of all of those people found to have credible fear, 14 percent of the entire total of people who would ever claim credible fear ultimately received asylum. So Congress could fix that language. But again, you know, it really is the issue of if those individuals were just detained, we wouldn't have all those bad cases showing at the, up at the border. Oh, we I might see. not even have to change that credible fear Because standard. the incentive Because the incentive would be gone. gone. Yeah. So if you just say, I fear, yeah. So, so if you can just show up and say, I fear detention or read the little card your smuggler gave you about what you're supposed to say, and that releases you into the country, then everybody, all your relatives back home have a huge incentive to go and do the same thing. Absolutely. Or, so if that incentive isn't there, then that's interesting. Yeah. So you wouldn't necessarily have to raise the credible fear bar. But it's, I don't know, it seems to me that it's probably still worth doing because... But yeah, and we've, we've seen Congress do that before. So under the old suspension of deportation, you could receive a green card if you showed extreme hardship to a qualifying relative. In 1996, Congress changed that to exceptional and extremely unusual hardship. So you could just add additional words. So they need a thesaurus to add exactly. some adverbs and adjectives to uh, to the law. Okay. Well, good. So bottom line here is that the surge we're seeing at the border is a creation of government policy. In the immediate event, it is Biden's doing. But the fact is there's an underlying problem that the past three administrations have been dealing with. And it's something that the Biden administration could address partly on its own, but also one that Congress needs to get off its stuff and actually fix because this is going to keep happening depending if these underlying loopholes aren't fixed. Yeah, and I don't really see anything that's going to stem the current flow of migrants, current surge of migrants to the United States illegally until that happens. Now, I mean, it just to sort of be more cautious about it, the numbers could go down a little bit because remember what we saw with Obama in 2014, 
when this issue really exploded, driven by these same underlying factors. It's all the same border crisis. But he bribed Mexico to do a little better enforcement. Absolutely. And so in 2015, the numbers dipped down a little bit from the earlier high. They didn't go back to where they were, but it had slowed. And then it just started going right back up. Right. And when we saw the Obama administration take steps, as it did in 2014 to detain families, you know, that dissuaded people from coming. When Mexico actually stepped up its enforcement, we saw people uh, stop coming. So, again, one of the things that you're going to hear is the administration, every time there's a dip in the number, is going to say, look, we finally got this under control. But one of the ways that they could put it under control is by simply granting asylum to everyone. That's a question. Yeah, that'll be another show. But that does seem to be part of the uh, agenda of these guys is to dramatically expand the grounds for asylum. But um, we've had enough for this show, and that'll be another show once they do that. Apparently, there's a a regulation in the works to basically grant asylum much more broadly than we do now. And when that happens, then we'll have you back to talk about it. Thanks for coming on, Art. All of Art's extensive writing on these loopholes is available at our website, cis.org. And you just look for author Andrew Arthur and his writing on what are the pull factors uh, and the loopholes that incentivize this migration that we're now seeing, the crisis at the border, is all there for those who want to learn more about this. One of the implications of the Biden rhetoric and Biden policies that really hasn't been discussed very much before. I wrote about a little bit recently, keying off an article uh, from the New York Times. The government statistics on this are clear, and what the Times did is go down and actually talk to some people. And what, what we're talking about here is that the border crisis up to now, and it's been going on with fits and starts really since the beginning of the Obama administration, has focused mainly on people from Central America. Mexicans were the traditional main source of illegal immigration, and there's still Mexican illegal immigration, but because of these loopholes that Art and I talked about, it has the, the source countries have shifted to what are, is known in the shorthand as the Northern Triangle of Central America, which is to say Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. And that's still, those are still the main sources of the illegal immigrant flow that we're seeing in this border crisis. But what's changed is that we're now seeing people coming from all over the world. The numbers for April, which are reported, the government actually does a better job now, provides more data on more, a more detailed breakdown about the people that the Border Patrol is arresting. And what it shows is that of those who come as family units, which is to say at least one adult traveling with at least one child, family migrant unit is the jargon that the Border Patrol uses. Very few of them last year, last April, not not this year's April, but previous year's April, very few of them were from any country other than Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. That was basically all more than 90%. What the statistics show for the April that for this last month is that fully 30% of all of the family units who were apprehended by the Border Patrol come from countries other than Mexico and the Northern Triangle of Central America. 
uh, the New York Times wrote about, went down and talked to some of these people and wrote about it. And it is really quite remarkable. They're coming from not just countries in Latin America that are further away than Central America. For instance, Ecuador, Venezuela, Brazil. Brazil is pretty far away, but it's still Latin America. But they're also seeing significant numbers of people from India, in the Middle East, and elsewhere. The Border Patrol reports that they're now apprehending people from 160 countries around the world. And there's only about 190 or so countries in the world, depending on what you count as a country. So if you take out the developed parts of Europe and East Asia, basically every country in the world is now sending people and is responding to what the smugglers refer to as la invitacion, the invitation that Biden sent to illegal immigrants through his campaign rhetoric and then through his actions as president. And this is important for a couple of reasons. First of all, it puts the lie to the claim by some people that this is just about hurricanes in Central America or uh, you know, specific problems in Guatemala and Honduras, that that's what's driving this and that's all this is about. Uh, no, it's not. This is very much a response to the pull factors that we talked about, the loopholes that make it possible for illegal immigrants who have no right to be here to be let in. The New York Times reporter said that in interviews, she found that many of the, these apprehended illegal immigrants, they turned themselves in, quote, perceived a limited time offer to enter the United States, unquote. In other words, the door is open. They're afraid it may close because we may wise up and start enforcing our laws. And so they're rushing in to, to take advantage of this limited time offer as quickly as possible. This is not going to stop. This really does prove beyond any plausible argument that it's the pull factors of the loopholes in our law that are creating the incentive that is what is pulling people in, not the discrete problems of gang violence in Guatemala or the aftermath of a hurricane in Honduras. And until the Biden administration changes the way it deals with border matters, this is going to grow. And you're going to have not just 30%, it's perfectly plausible that in the not too distant future, a majority of the people who come as family members coming across the border and then pretending to apply for asylum will not be from the immediate neighborhood of the United States, but will have flown thousands of miles from Asia or Africa or elsewhere to come here. And this is not going to go away on its own. It may dip some in the summer. The numbers probably will dip a little bit in the heat of the summer. But this is going to continue to be an unprecedented problem until the administration does something to actually change the incentives, turn off the magnets that the loopholes in our law create. Uh, I appreciate, thank you everybody for uh, tuning in. All of our work is online at cis.org. In the show notes, there'll be a link to not only Art's work on this, the loopholes, but also uh, my piece, 
on the people coming from more and more countries around the world. And I hope you tune in next week for the next episode of Parsing Immigration Policy. This is Mark Krikorian saying goodbye for now. Thank you.